0: Welcome to the Photo Banter Podcast. I'm your host Alex Gagne and on today's podcast I speak with photographer Brad Trent. Brad has worked with clients such as Variety, Time Magazine, Pepsi, Esquire, and HBO to name a few. Brad has photographed notable people such as Barack Obama, Spike Lee, Tony Bennett, and Patti Smith to name a few. In this interview, I speak to Brad about growing up in Canada, where he started his photography career before making the jump to New York City. I also speak to Brad about his approach to portraiture and how he handles challenging shoots, such as his experience photographing legendary musician Patti Smith in the middle of Penn Station in New York City. Brad is someone who has a wealth of knowledge and experience in the photography industry, so I was excited to get a chance to speak with him about his work. So I hope you enjoy, and thanks so much for listening. Well, Brad Trent welcome to the podcast a long time coming excited to have you our mutual friend uh, Cheyenne Ascarnia uh, he's been telling me for for months he's like you got to reach out to Brad you got to reach out to Brad uh so excited to talk to you man how, how did you and Cheyenne meet by the way I was just kind of curious
1: oh we uh uh we actually met through a musician friend of mine uh he had uh woman named kate tucker she's a singer songwriter and she was working for another friend of ours another photographer a friend of ours who ran a production company and they had cheyenne in their little quiver of photographers out in la and uh, she was telling me all about this photographer cheyenne Cheyenne, you got to check out cheyenne and at the same time she was talking to my my wife who's a photo editor at the wall street journal you got to check out cheyenne and um so Ronnie, um, Ronnie Wild, she um, actually gave Cheyenne a couple of gigs based on, you know, our connection through Kate. And um, I don't know, a few months later, he ended up in L.A. and we ended up in the same bar and I, you know, Kate was there and, and Jesse English, this other, the other photographer was there. And uh, yeah, I ran across the room and I yelled at him, uh, Ashkarnia!
0: Yeah, that's what he told me. He's like, ask Brad the first thing he, he said to said to him, I guess. Yeah. That's what he said.
1: We've, we've been friends ever since. I mean, uh, he's, uh, he's something, that guy.
0: No, definitely. He gets after it. Um, and... I was looking at your website, I was excited to talk to you um, for a lot of reasons, but I, I saw before becoming a photographer, you, you spent some time working on a sod farm. Uh, I was kind of curious, uh, how, how was that experience? And uh, I was just, working on a sod farm seems kind of interesting.
1: It's probably the only real job I've had besides working at a Safeway store. But um, uh, yeah, it was the first job I ever had. I mean, I was still in high school. I worked uh, worked an entire summer stacking sod back in uh, in Edmonton, Alberta. It was the worst job I ever had. It convinced <laughs> me that manual labor was not for me.
0: Yeah, but then looking at your uh, recent variety cover, uh, you're still doing a lot of manual labor. You guys brought uh, like twelve thousand pounds of lights onto the roof, uh, which we'll get into. Yeah,
1: nobody, uh, nobody ever told me photography would be worse than stacking sod. But
0: <laughs> you're stocking of cute packs. Uh, yeah what uh so you so where did you grow up Uh, in alberta canada i think that's where you mentioned
1: i grew up all over canada but i mean the the formative years and where i started uh, photography was was just outside of edmonton in in a little suburb called saint albert um i moved there in the ninth grade and i didn't know i mean i i had i'd been drawn to photography and when i when i look back at it i was drawn to photography from a very early age mostly because i was uh, i was a sickly child and i spent a lot of time in doctor's offices and there would always be you know life magazine and, and look and and those type of photo magazines that you know we didn't get in canada I mean, my parents didn't subscribe to them because it wasn't their thing but i'd see them in the doctor's office and um, i always was drawn to just the visuals the, the photography in these magazines and years later, I ended up working for a lot of those photographers when I moved to New York. I mean, that, that was the connection to photography. But when I moved to Edmonton, um, I, was, I was literally on the playground one day and I, I pressed up against a brick wall with a camera that I'd never seen before. And he mm. was like, you know, this far from the wall. And I didn't know what he was doing. I walked up and he had a macro lens on an old Pentax and he was shooting ants
0: <laughs>
1: in, in a crack between the bricks. And I thought it was the coolest shit I'd ever seen. I mean, you know, my, my photography, my mom had a brownie Hawkeye. That was the only camera we had in the house at that time. So in the ninth grade, I saw this guy and, you know, I hung out and I didn't know anybody because I was new to the school. So it was a way to at least meet somebody. And he was on the yearbook committee. And then I ended up, you know, making friends with him and doing that. And that, that's what got me into photography. I mean, all through high school, um, I did that. You know, that's that's where I got going. It never really occurred to me to be a a, a career, though. I mean, mm. again, in, in Western Canada, a photographer was the guy that, you know, took the family portraits and the weddings and things like that. So he didn't really, you know, I had no aspirations of doing that. Um, I was I was actually geared up to be an architect because, a you know, a high school guidance counselor said, yeah, you should do this. You know, you were good at math and you were good at, you know, Uh, physics and things like that so they they try to pigeonhole you into something and i didn't know what the hell an architect was i mean uh i spent three years you know taking higher math and physics in high school and basically hating it and applying to the university of alberta engineering school not really knowing what the hell any of that meant Mm. and i bailed on that at the last minute because there was no way i wanted to be an architect i mean I saw what some of these guys that were going to be architects like they were wearing Le Corbusier t-shirts and they were, you know, that, that was their life. It, for me, it was cool, but, and I still love it, Yep. you know, the architect part, but I couldn't have packed uh, seven years of, you know, higher education and ended up, you know, designing tract homes in Western Canada. I mean, that would have, I would have blown my brains out.
0: Yeah, definitely. And when you kind of started shooting photos, like, what kind of stuff were you interested in photographing? Like looking at your work now, like most of your works like portraiture based. And was that kind of always your interest in photography from the get go?
1: Well, again, back in high school, that's what I did. I mean, it was because I was, I was more or less, I was a quiet kid that was just trying to get to meet people. We moved around a lot as a kid. And when I ended up in Edmonton and discovering photography and discovering that I could take pictures of, you know, people in high school and give them prints. That was a great way to make friends. So I was always drawn to shooting people, but not, you know, not thinking that was anything other. I just like doing it. You know, I liked, the, I liked the, the sort of instant gratification of taking a picture of somebody and then they liked it. And then, you know, it was, it was a payoff in that way to make friends. When I, you know, when I got out of, when I bailed on the whole architect idea, I didn't really know what I was going to do, but another friend of mine from high school was taking this photography program in Edmonton. And he said, you should apply. And I did. And we, you know, it was a two year technical school program at the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. And that's when, OK, I could do this. I still had no plan on where it was going to take me. I mean, I mean, again, I'm still in Edmonton, which is. You know, it's not the center of everything, anything, not back then. We're talking the late seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the ultimate idea back then would be, okay, I'll do this. And then I'll move to Toronto and I'll make it there because, you know, you weren't going to do it there. But as, as it turned out, I finished photo school. I ended up moving to Calgary because a guy got, you know, guy offered me a job and it was a typical small, you know, small town photography type business where you did everything the very first day i worked for this guy he said okay there's the gear there's the van drive to this show home on the south end of town and you're shooting a carpet ad oh wow and i'm like okay shit all the stuff i learned in school about architecture photography is going to come and play now because here i am with a four by five and a bunch of old bowens mono lights and i got to shoot a carpet ad in a show house <laughs> yeah you know, and I'm like, okay. And I did, you know, honestly, I nailed it. I shot the shit out of that house. But, you know, that's what we did at that that first gig that I had, that first job that I had. Everything from that to, um, you know, shooting oil rigs and gas plants and construction sites. And, you know, anybody that had a gig, you would shoot it. Uh-huh. And on the side, I would shoot, you know, my friends. And then I started shooting for... Uh, the local modeling school, which happened to be a John Casablanca's elite modeling school. And then I'm shooting girls. And it's like, Oh, this is great. This is, <laughs> you know, this is, this is why you become a photographer. Right. I mean, they're like, I'm, I'm in Edmonton, I'm making money. And then the, the, the guy that I was working for, he went out of business, but I got all of his clients. Oh, so wow. now I was like, I was, I think 21. And I was making, basically as much money as you could make in Calgary, Alberta. I found out what the most expensive photographer in town was charging, which at that time was 600 bucks a day. Mm -hmm. And my rate was 750.
0: Damn, seriously.
1: 19, I guess that'd be like 1980. I was was making money as a photographer shooting oil rigs and gas plants and construction sites and doing what you do. And on the side, I was shooting models, you know, for the modeling school. And um, it ended up being that okay, that's great. I love that. But you know, I can't keep on. I didn't want to be the guy in Calgary shooting oil rigs and gas plants. Mm-hmm. My girlfriend, who was a model, got taken by Elite to New York. So we came to New York to check it out in February of 82. Mm. And Elite said, great. They wanted her, which meant that I was moving to New York. You know, I <laughs> trashed the great business and all this. And then uh, I moved to New York in June of 82. Uh...
0: What was, moving, what was like moving from Canada to New York? Did did you enjoy New York from the get-go? Um, it, it, you've obviously been there a long time. What was kind of your initial kind of reaction moving from Canada to New York City? It must have been a kind of a big jump, I would imagine. Well,
1: the biggest place I'd ever been before that was, was Toronto. Mm-hmm. No comparison. I mean, this. remember, this was New York in 82. New York was still pretty much a shithole in 82. I mean, it was just coming out of the big recession of the 70s it was still grungy and dirty and you know and it was great i mean believe <laughs> you know, the first time you the first time you come to new york back then it's like everything is is just over the top and big and huge plus i had a i had a pretty you know, by elite. So John Casablancas was hooking me up right from the beginning. And when we we came originally a few months earlier and he set me up to see some photographers. And again, this was to come to look and get assisting work because that's all I was going to get. I mean, I had no, I had no illusions of working as a photographer, but he hooked me up with a lot of really good photographers as soon as I got to New York. So when we did move here within the first couple of weeks, I had worked for Arthur Elgort and Patrick DeMarshley just because elite said, there's a, you know, there's a guy in town, you get, you know, take him on as like the fifth assistant on the left and he'll just hold a pick stand or something. And, and the idea was, I mean, again, I moved here with a model. I loved the whole idea of being a fashion photographer. So I figured I'm going to be a fashion photographer. And within six months I realized there's no way I'm going to be a fashion photographer. Why I mean, is that? <laughs> you're either a fashion photographer or you're not, you know, and, and the best thing for me was that I recognized that very early on. I mean, if you work for fashion photographers and you see what it's like, and if that's, if you want that to be your life, go with God. That's great. I knew I couldn't hack it. I mean, there was just, it wasn't about the photography. It was more just the whole way things got done.
0: It's like big personalities and stuff, right? Like,
1: well, yeah. I mean, I certainly met those people, Mm -hmm. big personality people. Yeah. You meet them and the the insecure personalities and all the support staff and all all it's a weird business, man. I mean, I'm not I'm not talking out of school to say there's a lot of nuts in fashion <laughs> and, and unless unless you want to live fashion. And, and the other thing is, I saw in, in the first, you know, the first six or eight months that I was here, I saw great fashion photographers, guys that were better at fashion than some of the designers they work for. I mean, they, they absolutely knew it. And I'm, I'm including guys like, you know, Elgort and Demarchelier and Albert Watson and Rebecca Blake, people that just they would see the clothes. They would know what would look good. They would understand it. I was never that guy. I mean, I would, uh, you know, I, and if you're not going to be that, you know, that focused on what you're doing, it's probably best to realize that early on and get out. And, yeah. I, you know, I could have done it. I could have been a very passable fashion photographer. I mean, it wasn't about technique or anything like that. It was just uh, I couldn't see myself waking up after 20 or 30 years and looking back at my career of being a middling fashion photographer. It just didn't seem to, to jive.
0: And it's looking at your work, the thing that's cool about it, and y- you get to photograph so many different types of people. It's not just like, it's not fashion, it's like business people, it's musicians, it's athletes, it's like uh, uh, scientists or whatever, and it's across the board. And it just seems like, for me, like, that's the thing that's interesting thing about photography is getting to meet all these different people. And it's like, I guess, unless you love fashion, it would get really monotonous, I think, if you're the shooting the same type of like, person and kind of subject matter, you know?
1: Well, th- again, that that took that, that took a long time because at the same time, I realized I had this moment of clarity that I'm not going to be a fashion photographer. I was breaking up with the model girlfriend and I didn't know what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want to keep on assisting fashion guys just to make a living because there's no living. I mean, at that time, you're working for you know anywhere from 50 to 75 bucks a day. Damn. And uh, you know, you're living in New York, you're every, everything you're making is going to pay rent and food and everything else. So the girlfriend and I are breaking up. I don't know what I want to do with my career. So I just started working for everybody. I mean, I had, I had a pretty good network of people, you know, that, you know, that, that I could get work with other people, but I worked for everybody from, you know, architecture guys to car guys. I mean, just anybody that had a gig, I was, I was available and I was a good assistant. So I got a lot of work, um, mm-hmm. uh, despite, you know, not wanting to do manual labor, (laughs) it it all sort of worked out. Um, But then, and I was also sending out resumes to people who I really did want to, you know, explore. And those were the guys that, again, going back to when I was a kid, I knew these names. I knew names like Co Rentmeester and Dave Burnett. And at that time, they were the people at at, at Time Life, you know, all the Time and Life photographers. And I was sending out resumes And I got a call, I'd met, I'd met this one guy. So the guy who ended up being my mentor was Enrico Fiorelli. He was shooting for Life Magazine and Time and Fortune and, you know, and I met him, I think in, it was probably like late September, early October of 83. And I was it? 82. Yeah, 83 probably. And never heard a word. And then one day, like January, early January of the next year, I get a phone call at like eight o'clock at night. Are you available tomorrow? We have to, you know, I got to get, here. I said, yeah, sure. Okay. Meet me at my apartment at four 30 in the morning. We're flying to Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, you got, we got to be ready to go. So I'm like, okay, great. Get to his place at four 30, get to LaGuardia. We've got a 6. A.M. Flight to fly to Providence. I get to his apartment and he's got a stack of gear that I'm like, what are we shooting? And it's just him and me. I mean, we had giant anvil cases of strobes and two cases of stands and, you know, three camera bags. And we get to LaGuardia and we get to the, we're flying some little puddle jumper flight from LaGuardia across the Sound to Providence. Yeah, it's like 20 minutes. How are you going to get this on that? We're going to weigh down the plane. We get to Providence. We get to, we went to Brown University and we were shooting babies for Life magazine. But it was like this very intense story on how babies learn with this Nobel Prize winning you know, doctor. And so the day started at 4.30 in the morning. By the time we got, it was a day trip. By the time we got home, back to his place, it was, I don't know, after 11 o'clock. And it was the most fun I'd had in the previous year on a shoot. I mean, it was like, there was no, you know, there was nothing, there were no art directors, no photo, there was nothing, it was just him. Go find pictures, go make pictures. And we had a great time. Yeah. You know, like he, he didn't know what he was getting into. I mean, he had vague, a vague outline of what this story was about. And that's typically the way things work even now. I mean, you're not, you don't know everything when you get in. You just sort of, okay, this is, you know, go make a picture, go make, go make the story. So that that one day, and because we hit it off pretty well, led to my big hookup at Time Inc. I mean, I ended up working for Enrico from, I, I think my time might've been wrong. It might've been the end of 82. Cause I think it was the end of the first year. So it would have been 83. I assisted with all those guys at the time, Inc. I mean, I worked for just about everybody at Life Magazine until I really went out on my own, which was, you know, the end of 86. Yeah.
0: And what, what was it like working like a photo assistant back then? Cause obviously you guys are shooting film. Like how different was the job of a photo assistant back then versus now you think?
1: Um. It's, I mean, that's it's a good question. I mean, I, the, the guts of the job are the same. I think um, it was in a lot of ways, it was a lot more work, a lot harder, a lot longer days because you know, you were, you know, you'd finish jobs and you would have to run film to the lab, come back with the clip tests, go back and run the stuff. I mean, you were sort of tasked with being there a lot of times to help out afterwards. And then you work for guys that just thought, okay, a day of work is from here to here, and you're going to work the whole day, even if the shoot lasted an hour and a half. The guy would have you cutting mats or cleaning the studio for the next six hours, just because yeah. he's going to get a day of work out of you. I mean, that was that was normal. Yeah, um, that's just happen now i mean my assistant no that does i've had
0: to happen that. recently to what client i've worked with they do that shit it's fucking brutal <laughs> um, uh.
1: my assistants love me man because they know they're going to probably meet me at the gig <laughs> and then shoot the gig and then they'll say okay give me a bunch of money i'm going home and that's <laughs> it I'm, I'm taking the gear back to my place i'm doing all the stuff but the other thing is just the post work right i mean with digital it's not the same it's not like you're you know you don't have to worry about labs and all this other stuff and mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's one big difference. The other difference is it's, you know, it's not like back then where you were traveling a lot. I mean, I was spending more than six months of my life on the road back then, you know, up until, up until the internet, up until even like getting into like 97, 98, my whole business model was get on a plane, fly to a place, make stories, you know, and that was, you know, that was after I figured out what I wanted to do after I started shooting my own stuff. But even as an assistant, I mean, as an assistant back then, I went around the world with these guys. Yeah. I mean, Enrico and I went to Europe. We went to Australia. We went, you know, it was like you had budget. I mean, you would get gigs where you would literally go away and then it would be ongoing. Like we went to, we went to Italy once. Was it Italy first? Yeah. We flew to Italy. We shot this huge gig for Exxon for their annual report. While we're there, magazines are calling them saying, hey, can you go to Spain? Can you go to Scotland? We ended up extending our trip a month just to shoot magazine gigs in Spain and Scotland. I nearly got divorced. I mean, it was like I was—I <laughs> had just gotten married. That was in—that—that that was in yeah. I just got married in '85, and I was gone for you know two months. It was supposed to be like a three-week gig.
0: Yeah, because that's why like I, I I definitely read about and like I remember in photo school some uh, professors they would always talk about like annual reports annual reports and that was it seemed like such a Like a good avenue to go down. Like I doesn't. I don't really hear too many people shooting annual report stuff anymore, for the most part. But that seemed like rub it in. (laughs) Yeah, but back then that seemed like that was like basically getting like an ad gig, right? Like if you could shoot an annual report for like a big company.
1: Well, yeah, and 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 that was one of the things. Look, it it hasn't changed. If you're an editorial photographer, you'd better have some way of making real money. Mm -hmm. Even back then, especially back then. I mean, Time Inc. Paid three fifty a day. Okay. I mean, it's not like it's so much more now, but you can't live in New York on 350 a day. No. You, have to, you have to have, you know, a licensing network set up so you could sub-license your images. You have to have ways to make money, which is either advertising or corporate work. And, you know, that, that's, that's just what it always has been. I mean, if the one thing about this past year, all of my corporate work pretty much it's just it. here it just vaporized because there's nobody in the office there's nothing happening like the annual reports that i've done for years at this time right now like this is annual report season from january through march april i would normally be up to my ass in, in corporate gigs wow it's a big chunk of change that just disappeared it started last year i mean we shot we shot a couple in january and february and then we had stuff canceled from march through june i mean it was just and it ain't coming back. I mean, it's it's, or it's not coming back now. It didn't come back this year.
0: Yeah, it's going to, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, because I've lost a lot of, even my editorial clients, now they're like, it's more like the regional stuff. They're relying more on like stock imagery or like they'll even, like one of the magazines I used to shoot for all the time, they'll say they're photographing a chef or something. They'll just ask the chef like, hey, do you have an existing photo of yourself we can yeah. use? Because those regional magazines, they depend on, uh, local advertisers to advertise and it's like the local restaurants and whatever businesses can't even advertise in those magazines anymore so it's like yeah all those assignments are gone now
1: I've still got clients that aren't shooting anything indoors even now you know, Yeah, all of their photographers have to shoot outside uh, you have to uh, you know and then I've got clients that are saying and you can't specify that you have to follow any kind of suggested protocol like so I've got some clients that say you can't Take a gig if they insist you have to have uh, a COVID test ahead of time, because that would imply that they're getting into your healthcare. I'm like, okay, well, you know, it, it's just there's so many things that are you have to wrap your head around these days just to get a picture taken. Oh I mean, yeah. Done, look, um, I mean, we're getting it. We're we're skipping a lot, but in the past year, since March March 10th last year, I shot six gigs. Yeah. That's it. Normal month, you know, that's an average okay kind of month for me. 6 yep. gigs since March 10th. And some of them, most of them, most of the 6, I think four of the 6 were good paying, you know, jobs. But so what? I mean, they would have been there anyway. Those same good paying jobs would have been there in a normal year anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is no joke. Like you said you've got clients that aren't hiring you. I've got clients that are literally out of business. I mean, Yeah. design companies that are gone, magazines that have folded. Other magazines that have gone full digital which means you'll never see them again you know
0: yeah it is crazy i don't know i'm hopefully we we'll get back on track with the vaccine and stuff and but who knows i think it, it's going to be it ain't going to be overnight that's for sure but i was trying to try to stay in the game but you know I, it, gets, it gets tougher I, by the
1: year i do have, you know it is picking up i've got a i've got a corporate shoot next week mm-hmm. for my regular things because you know and this is going to be you know, a bunch of, a bunch of portraits of executives, um, thank God, you know, because again, a good paying job and from a regular client that isn't going away. So,
0: yeah, definitely. So how do you kind of start shooting your own assignments? Obviously you're assisting all the life guys and were you kind of working on your own portfolio on the side and like, how did you kind of, who were kind of some of the first clients and assignments you started getting once you kind of started working for yourself?
1: yeah this is one of those things that doesn't happen anymore at least not the way it did back then I was I was hooked up with like I said just about every magazine and photographer that worked up at time Inc most of the time in life guys mm-hmm. um, so when it came time and so and like literally I had my own magnetic card key to get into the time Inc building because we're coming and going all the time you know we're going up to the 20th floor and giving gear and the lab and everything we were there all the time so, when it came time to, to make a move because um, I was, you know, I was working a lot with Enrico Ferrelli. I was working with co-rent I worked with Heisler. I worked with Mary and Mark. They all pretty much knew it's time to, you know, take off, go do your own thing, especially yeah. Enrico. Enrico pushed me out, you know, a couple of times No, get out, go do your own thing. So it forced me to, you know, get my own book together because it was hard at the time because when you're working so much, you don't even have time to shoot your own stuff. Yeah, I was working seven days a week, and then when you're on those road trips, it was it was hard just to uh, get some gigs, you know, get some of your own shooting off. The the places where I actually got some really good stuff that was in my initial portfolio, I was working for Eric Miola and Pete Turner and Al Satterwhite. These guys, I mean, I don't do you know these guys?
0: Oh yeah, Pete Turner for sure.
1: Okay, well, there were guys like these are the guys like when I was young, you pick up pop photo and American photography and, and their their images were on the cover all the time. Those, those, those Bowens Illumitron duped Sun <laughs> over the pyramids and yeah. like Miola did all that stuff. And a guy named Mitchell Funk and and um, and Al Satterwhite, they did all this stuff. And going on jobs with them, they were in pretty exotic locations. And there were some jobs I did where you're on the location on that guy's dime and you get to take some really cool pictures on your own. Yeah. You know, so you pull out the Kodachrome 25 and you get, you, know, you see some weird dude walking down the street and you take a portrait of him and boom, it's in your book, right? Yeah. And where are you in some weird place with bright colors and crazy shit? And so my first portfolio, despite the fact that I was working for all these editorial, you know, photo essayists, I started, it looked very bright, poppy, you know, super saturated, um, very Pete Turner, Al Satterwhite kind of stuff. But it got, it had a look. And the weird thing was, it was all portrait-based. But when I got pushed out and I started having to think about getting jobs, I showed that around. I take it up to the Time Inc. People say, oh, we didn't know you did this kind of stuff. That's cool, great, okay. Out of nowhere, the photo editor at Life Magazine gives me a big job to shoot on this 200th anniversary of the Constitution issue, and it's all still life. It hmm. has nothing to do with what I. Do. <laughs> I mean, he calls me in and says, "We want you to go to like you know ten states in two weeks and shoot all these historical societies and private collections and museums and and this is what you got to shoot and you got to have it back here in this day and here's a bunch of money and here's a reporter to go with you and you get an assistant in the truck and a you know a bunch of gear." I'm like, "Oh shit!" and and in my and like I'm like, "I don't want to do this." You know, I told this friend of mine, he says, Are you out of your mind they're gonna send you out for two weeks just to shoot, you know, like, like little, you know, paintings and and tchotchkes and pots for doing <laughs> go nuts. So I'm like, Okay, well, I'll do it. And when that issue came out, I was suddenly completely legitimate in the time 8 building. Yeah. Despite the fact that I showed all these people this this uh, you know bright poppy crazy stuff, I'm in this very conservative 200th anniversary of the Constitution issue, and suddenly I'm getting phone calls to shoot stuff, you know, for Time magazine and for you know for all the Time magazines. I was working for them based mm-hmm. on that one special issue of the Constitution. Were
0: they so- hitting you up to shoot more still life stuff, or
1: well, life started me doing that. Like right after that, my next gig was. There was this little girl that got got murdered by her father lisa steinberg this is going back to i don't know what year that was ahead of the 87 maybe and um they had me camp out at their house in the village and shoot the shrine that was happy you know that was taking place outside of this house and again because it was life you know they want everything You know, there was this whole stigma about shooting eight by ten we well, not a stigma. It was sort of like, they pushed you to shoot eight by 10 or four by five. It was like, you would work for these guys. Like you'd show up on a job for, for Heisler. He'd have everything from a wide locks camera to an eight by 10 sign RP that you would take out to the gig and you would shoot all of that stuff. And Rico did the same thing, you know, like, oh, we're taking the eight by 10 today. He said we're shooting a portrait. Oh, we're taking the eight by 10. And I'm mm-hmm. like, okay. So I thought I have to go out there with large format. So I go out there with a four by five and it's like, Snowy and rainy and shitty, and I'm standing out there with a bag over my head, and I'm shooting this little shrine of this of this thing that's happening outside this house, and I got this picture of these candles glowing and people putting flowers down, and it really close up with a wide angle lens, and it ran in Life Magazine, and again, boom, you know, it was like it was one of those things, and then it syndicated because it was that kind of picture, so it goes around the world, and then I start building this this thing up, where. I'm a photographer that people think they know based on these pictures. And yeah, I did start getting that kind of stuff, like still life-y kind of things. You know, they sent me uh, down to DC to shoot the guns or the gun that shot Reagan. And then I came back to New York and I shot the gun that shot uh, John Lennon. And it was like wow. okay, turning into Life Magazine's still life guy. And to break out of it, I said, I gotta shoot my own photo essays. I gotta shoot my own stories. So I started doing little things around my neighborhood. I lived in Brooklyn at the time. Me and another photographer put together a thing called a day in the life of Greenpoint. We lived in Greenpoint and we got like 25 other photographers and we did a day in the life project. And it was, at, oh, I just remembered it was when day in the life in New York was happening. It was okay. people that didn't get invited to go and day in the life in New York. Like all these people that we knew that were like, oh, shit, we didn't get on day in the life. So we shot, we do day in the life of Greenpoint.
0: That's awesome.
1: And so I shot that, I got some cool stuff on that. And then I shot, um, oh, I shot, this was the other big one that got into the times. I shot uh, a story in the animal medical center, you know, the animal hospital and well, actually, you don't know, there's a huge animal hospital. It's a teaching hospital on the, the, like East 60th street. And I spent a couple of months shooting overnight in the emergency clinic, people bringing their sick animals into this place. And I'd get there at like eight o'clock at night and I'd leave around four in the morning. And that was the crazy time. Cause in New York, most people are at work during the day. They come home and their dog and cat is sick and they race to the hospital. And I, I put this photo essay together after a couple of months and I take it to life magazine and I show it to the photo editor at life. And he looks at and goes, Oh, this is great. This is great. This is great. But we just ran a story on a on, a, on a, v- a veterinary story we shot James Harriet the old, the old creatures great and small guy uh, we can't have two vet stories right now it's completely different I mean yeah, yeah. It's a picture of an English veterinarian running through the hills and dales of Wales with a sheep or <laughs> it's a woman bringing her bloody dog in that just got hit by a car and is screaming and crying <laughs> and so I'm like oh shit what am I going to do so I shotgunned it out to everybody I could think of in town including the New York Times. And Kathy Ryan made a photo essay out of it for the magazine. Damn. Which was, again, total shift. And it just moved me. Now I'm shooting photo essays. again, okay. no plan. I mean, it's like, I didn't think I was going to be shooting photo essays. But like overnight, suddenly I start getting back into closer to what I wanted to do, which was shoot people. But um, then I start shooting for Time and Newsweek and Businessweek and, you know, Forbes and and those types of things, which are more you know, photo stories, they were more portrait driven, but they were at least photo stories.
0: Mm. And, uh, you know, like looking at your work, it's like portrait based, like in your mind, like what makes a good portrait? And like, how do you approach portrait photography? And is it like some that your approach has changed much over the years, you think?
1: You know, when I started, and which was, you know, when I stopped assisting and started shooting, this was right when, most port- like certainly celebrity portraiture was getting run by, by, by uh, management and by publicists and things mm-hmm. like that. So the idea that you're going to have a lot of time with somebody was already coming to a close, you know, mm-hmm. the idea that you'd be able to develop a great rapport and hang out for a couple of days that, that, that was already done. If you weren't working for vanity fair, it ain't going to happen. Yeah. So, but I worked for a lot of people that I saw how, you, you would be able to develop that instant connection, whether it was, you know, telling a joke or doing a little bit of research and finding out something about them. And again, this is pre-internet, so you had to sort of do a little bit of work. If you, and, and, not, and not just celebrity, but even business people, because the one thing I did start doing from very early on was working for business magazines. So you'd find out what the person was all about where they worked for before or what they did or a little bit about their own business. So at least that first 30 seconds that you had when you met them, you could drop something in that shows that you're at least interested in what they do enough that they're not going to just think, okay, it's the photo guy. Let's get this over. Yeah. And that, that, and really you're talking about if you can't get them within the first minute or two, a lot of times they just check out. I mean, anybody, you know, you really have to have some kind of a connection. So I've, I've always done you know, enough work before the shoot to get me at least, at least the, the knowledge that, of the person I'm doing or some knowledge of the person I'm doing that I have something that I can talk to them about. Yeah. It's almost impossible to go in and just say, okay, here's my fancy idea how I want you to do something. And again, that's, that's part of the business too because even going back to when I first started in the Life Magazine shoots, you are already imposing your idea on people back then you know like my idea of what life magazine was when i was i first started was oh you're going to go into this amazing stuff and it's going to be this big collaboration it's never that way i mean the 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 amount of times you actually collaborate with somebody on a a magazine editorial shoot i could hold in my hand
0: yeah it's all it's all up to you i think it froze
1: there did I lose you there. And and he's out there. And and sometimes they work and sometimes they'll you'll just get shot down. Most okay. of the time you don't get shot down. I mean, celebrity stuff, more often than not, you gotta come up with twenty ideas before you can get in the door. Run it past the manager, and they'll shoot down most of them just right off the bat.
0: Yeah. I was gonna ask you that. You you mentioned like the business stuff you do, and I think for me, like anybody who can like photograph business people well is like such a skill because a lot of times, as you know, you're this photographing, I'm in some like boring office, like cubicle country, and you can't really rely on the location so much. So, like, how do you approach those like business shoots and walk away with like a compelling photograph? Because I mean, I've done a lot of it myself and I, I find it, um, it is a challenge, but it's uh, looking at your work, you've done some really cool stuff for like Barons. I think you did like a, it's, you did it for over 10 years on your website, like the Barons round table, but like, how do you approach those like business shoots, I guess?
1: Well, the round table is a whole different animal. That's, yep. that's a photo composite nightmare. Um, Mm-hmm. Just, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about that, but the, the basic business is, I mean, look, I'm a lighting guy. I've always been a lighting guy from day one. I mean, I was, uh, I, even before I started assisting, even when I still lived in Canada, I, I, I liked playing with light. So, and I knew, and I know what I can do with it. You know, mm-hmm. you get into a boring situation. I got, I got 20 tricks that I can make with light to make a, you know, boring beige room a little bit more interesting. Um, and you get, yeah, you get into that all the time. You go into a business office. It's not like you're walking into an Oliver Stone film that looks like wall street and you get this amazing view or this fantastic architecture. I mean, 98% of the time it's, you walk in and your eyes glaze over and go, shit. Oh, what do we do? You know, it's (laughs) like, and and the people around you too, you know, they'll go, okay, well, here's what we've got. He'll be here in, in an hour. Yeah. Good luck.
0: Yeah, is the you're standing next to the water cooler? Yeah, like, you know, some they'll, they'll shit on the
1: ground, <laughs> or or they'll say, "Well, we've had photographers here before. And we shoot here." I'm like, oh, "Yeah, that's the place where I'm not going to go because <laughs> it's already been done to death." So yeah. then you have to sort of think, "All right, what you know, what can you do?" Um, but as a lighting guy and as a guy that knows how you can you know shape and change reality, um, I've just. It, I don't get that freaked out anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if it's just, if I have to pull out a lighting trick and I put that in quotes, at least it gets me out of that boring situation. Yeah. I mean, without, you know, without thinking of specific pictures, I I also don't like that kind of gotcha picture. You know, the one where you see the guy looking like he's just completely ill at ease in his own situation because that's easy. You can always make a guy look like a deer in the headlights. And and that's the thing. Some magazines want that. They want to see what they think is the reality of a banal situation. They want you to put the guy in the, you know, in his in his environment. But then the one that the photo editor will always choose is the one where the guy of staring off like, why am I here? (laughs) And I, I I've never been able to really wrap my head around that picture as a as a style. Yeah. I know there are guys that do it and do it very well. And it's very striking, but I, 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 like you said, I, I tend to get hired to make people look good and I think I can do it. So, and I, you know, I don't want to make people look bad. I mean, that goes back to when I was in high school I mean, I started taking pictures to sort of make friends. Mm-hmm. And so I went from that to being a photojournalist where I was shooting real stuff. And now I'm shooting, you know, Sort of made up portraits of business people, but there's a purpose to it. I mean, you're not you're not often hired to go into an office and make a guy look bad. Yeah. You know, there are those stories where it, it might make sense, but I'm typically not the guy that they hire for that picture. You know, that's uh, there are people that do it far better than me.
0: And in terms of like lighting, like obviously you've been doing this for a while. Do you think, like, being that you're working commercially, editorial, do you have to pay attention to, like, photographic trends and, like, what certain magazines are publishing? Like, uh, to stay relevant, do you think you have to, like, kind of – pay attention to what what the the style of the day is or like what's your kind of thought because you know i see a lot of trends like in the last few years like gels came back real heavy and all types of stuff and then some magazines are shooting a lot of film so there's different trends you see Uh, like what's your kind of opinion because you've probably seen these trends change from decade to decade i guess
1: well yeah i mean I, i will say that my own style has certainly evolved over the you know my career. Yeah. I think the best time I've had has been when, you know, in the past 15 years since I've, well, more than that, I guess, since I started shooting digital, I enjoy the control I have over digital. Mm. I mean, not that I didn't like film. I loved a lot about film. I loved I mean, I made an entire section of my career, wrap around shooting Polaroid negatives. You know, and doing that, you know, carrying buckets around so you could process negatives on the field and shit like that. And I got hired to do you know, major campaigns doing that stuff. But as things changed, I mean, I, I've never really thought about sty- like stylistic ch- things like that as a way to change my career. Mm-hmm. I've seen things happen. Uh, I've seen styles come and go. I've never really had a big plan on the, the way my work looks to follow somebody else. But then I look back at stuff and I see, Oh yeah, a lot of people were doing that kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. in the eighties, everybody put like a, you know, three quarter CT gel over the main light. And everybody looked like they were sitting underneath a heat lamp. Yep. I look back at some of the shit I shot in the, the late eighties. I'm like, what was I thinking? You know, <laughs> you had that, that bright orange skin tone with a blue kicker. And you're like, Oh my God. You know? So yeah. I mean, you get influenced by stuff around you, but I never really thought that is the way to go. I did know that back, like in the around the middle part of the nineties and into the early 2000s, I was, I never had a specific look that you could say, Oh, that's a Brad Trent picture. And my reps pointed that out to me because I was a very hard rep. I mean, they could take my book in and they'd get great response, but it wasn't the same thing again and again and again and again. Mm-hmm. So if they were trying to get me a campaign It was a lot harder than a lot of photographers at the time who did the same thing. Like there were guys that shot with their whole thing was an octolite. You put an octolite up, whether it's in a studio or at sunset, that's his look. And you knew that that was that guy's look. You could see it a mile away and the client would know exactly what he was going to get. If I had focused on that kind of thing, maybe I would have done more ad work back then. But, uh, you know, I, I like I said, as a lighting guy, I'd get into something and I'd see how to solve the problem a different way. Plus, it was a little more exciting than doing the same thing over and over again. I actually had an assistant once tell me, why don't you just do this? We do this really well. Yeah. And I said, tell you what, you do it. You make a career out of it. I can't <laughs> do the same thing yeah. again and again, yeah, again, man. again. So, yeah, styles and trends and things, I've certainly seen them coming. I saw the, the the whole filtery bullshit come back again, and it makes my head spin. I'm like, there are people that think this is new. I'm like, no, it's not new. No,
0: no, no. And, then, and
1: dragging the shutter I mean my god and they don't even do it well I mean I can see somebody now like their whole reason for being is that they'll have a, a picture where they do a long drag on the shutters so that there's like a hot light and the strobe and boom that's the look I'm like you can do that once or twice or ten times but if you do keep on doing it it's just like all right um what are we doing next I mean where's the where's the soul of this picture
0: yeah yeah definitely. yeah definitely for me, for me. But- what's again echo there um yeah good good light and good composition at the end day it's all you need like you don't need all the tricks and whatever i mean whatever if people want to do it it's fun have fun with it but yeah sometimes i look at it i'm like why are you actually doing that is it because you think you're going to get hired for using it or do you actually enjoy it and uh because sometimes i think myself because you know those months where you don't got a job and you're like, damn, what do I need to do to get the next job? Should I start partaking in this gel stuff or whatever drag shutter? So it, it, it sometimes can, can be a real mindfuck, you know?
1: I get it. I mean, I see what, what is getting hired now. You know, yeah. I see the kind of pictures that get published. And, and I would think as a young photographer now, it'd be very hard not to fall into that kind of that hole. Yeah. see that if you see that, okay, this guy's getting all the work and he's doing this, maybe I should do that. The problem with that is if it's not what you're into, you're never going to pull it off. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very hard to pull off somebody else's style for the rest of your life, just because that happens to be the flavor of the moment. Definitely. Um, and over the years, people that do their own thing, the ones that have the longest careers and those are the ones that they look, I mean, I don't even know how you get going. Going in photography these days, there's an art directors. So you can't get in to see them. If you have to pay, you know, a couple of grand to do portfolio reviews just to get some FaceTime. My God, that's, that's tough enough. I know the viewers that do the the, the photo reviews too. I mean, I know them. These are friends of mine and they go, yeah, I sat down today for 10 hours and I I saw 50 guys and I don't know, my eyes glazed over after the fourth book, you know, like, and that's the people that you're paying all this money to go see.
0: Yeah. And I've done them and I've talked to editors who I'm friends with. And like, I think, I mean, I think some of those people doing the reviews are open to finding new people to hire. But I think a lot of the the people, the reviewers go into it and they're they're not even thinking about hiring these people. They think like they're just there to get advice about their work, which, yeah, true. Some people are looking for that. But, you know, I think the
1: end game is always you want to get hired. So, yeah, you you better bring your A game and have these people really get blown away. And if if the people are just sort of there thinking that they're just there as a a sounding board, you're Mm -hmm. screwed. I mean. You're going to pay a lot of money to get, and that's the problem. You can't get into to magazines and, and, and see people anymore, yeah. And if that's you know, because how else are you going to get hired? I mean, there's a lot of good photographers out there, man. There's tons of good photographers. You can't spit without hitting another great pic, a guy as that's a, a great a, picture. There's a new one every day. That's the case, then, how do you get people to hire you if you can't get them to meet you and realize that you're the guy that can handle this gig? Mm. You know, that's I'm glad I'm, I'm turning into an old man now because I don't have to worry about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, especially this year, it's been the challenge because like, I don't know, my experience, I've been doing this for like 12 years now and it's like all the jobs I got were just from meeting people in person and they kind of get a sense of your personality and that's kind of what's worked for me. But now it's like, yeah, you can't meet people in person. So it's like trying to like navigate this weird world of like marketing your work in a time when you can't meet people, you know?
1: But yeah, I, I can count on you know probably one hand the number of jobs i've gotten without ever meeting somebody yeah you know like it, it just i don't i don't know i guess it happens i guess it happens if your whole thing is you've got an instagram account that has you know tens of thousands of followers and people want to throw a dice and, and get you, get you a gig but i also know photo editors that have done that that have hired people based on what they've showed and they've been very disappointed I mean, you can't tell what a photographer is going to be like on an actual job based on their portfolio. You just can't. Yeah,
0: you know? you're, you're just seeing the highlights. and You don't know how they're going to uh,
1: yeah. approach and, this. I mean, this goes back to the type of work that, that most photo editors have to dole out. It's not like you have the luxury of time. You don't have days to get a picture or even hours to get a picture. You're shooting Bob at five o'clock and at 5.15, Bob's leaving the set. Okay. Yeah. Well, you get 15 minutes to come back with, you know, your cover, your opener and a table of contents picture. Yep. Go to town. You know? And
0: and a lot of times the budget, like, you know, a lot of shoots I do, it's like, there's not even a budget for assistant a lot of times. So it's like, you have to like,
1: well, think yeah, about film earlier, like, like, you know, film is a trend again. Yeah. I don't know a photo editor that has a film budget anymore. You know, yeah. if you call up a magazine and say, well, I do film like, magazines typically say that's great. Knock yep. yourself out. We got a thousand dollars bottom to top. That's it. You know. Yeah,
0: yeah. They're not paying for the film, but they'll they'll print
1: it because I. I'm, def- I'm glad to do it, but you know, it's on you.
0: It was interesting because I did a portfolio review back in October. They had the SPD one, and one of the photo editors I met with, I forget which magazine, but she was like all about film. She's like, I love that uh, our photographers shoot film, and I was like, that's cool. I mean, but to me, I don't know. Like, I, I don't really care if a picture is shot on film. To me, it, it just kind of goes back to the same thing. It's like interesting subject, good composition, good light. Like, I, I, I don't know. I don't get really, really bogged down by, like, the, the the, film aspect of stuff. But well,
1: I've I, never been that way. And honestly, after I figured it out, it took me a few years to really get my, you know, to get my digital chops down. Mm-hmm. I won't go back. I no, haven't I- shot a piece of film in so long, I can't even remember. I gave away. <laughs> I gave away my last bricks of frozen film like 10 years ago. I mean, they were just sitting there in the freezer. I'm like, well, you know, here you go. Take all my Velveeta, knock yourself out.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: What? what I mean, the, one of- thing, the one thing I honestly do miss though, is polar. I mean, I, I hate, I hate not being able to, to that, that, that Polaroid does not exist, that it's not in the world anymore, that you don't have, you know, type 55 negatives to mess with. And so that's the one,
0: that's the one I could go without the rest, but type 55, that's the one that, that that one really, that really stung, man.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And and I did like, there was a time when I would take out, you know, we'd go on a gig and you would take 10 or 15 packs of black and white Polaroid for a gig that had no intention of ever printing in black and white. Yeah. Just that you could shoot those Polaroid eggs for yourself, and then spend the weekend in the darkroom making some cool prints. Mm. And 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 honestly, I did. That was the one thing I did for myself, even you know, my entire career. And that's the one thing that got me more other work than anything else. You would show that stuff, and people just they ate it up. You know, it was like it was, you know, never saw it in print very rarely you would see one of those weird black and white twisty messed up things in print. Yep. And um, yeah.
0: Yeah. It's a different world now. Um, Once you, I want to talk to you about, I really enjoyed it. You, you photographed the uh, Patty Smith at Penn station. And for anybody who's ever been to Penn station, that place is a freaking zoo. So when I saw that photo, man, I, I like, I had to hear the backstory cause that must've been fucking
1: nuts. It, well, yeah. I mean that, That story's—it's taken on a life of its own. It's like legendary in how messed (laughs) up it was. We had that gig months in advance. Like my photo editor friend Rob Smith, our art director, called me up and he said he just on the phone, answered the phone, Patty Smith. I'm like, seriously? When? Yeah, whatever.
0: So who's who did you shoot that for?
1: It was for um, Arrive, which is the you know it's the it's the magazine that's on the Acela train. Yep. And so I'd, I'd worked for this guy for years. I mean, he's been at a bunch of different magazines, but then he, at, the, at that time he was at Arrive and we had done a lot of good stuff with him. We'd shot uh, we'd shot Seth Myers, we'd shot uh, Misty Copeland and this Patty Smith gang. I'm like, wow, okay, what are we doing? He says, well, we want to, you know, it's up to you. We want something kind of urban looking, maybe a little grungy, maybe a, you know, like a, just a, go nuts so i'd found a studio out in, in queens in long island city and we needed he needed both studio stuff and he wanted some location things maybe it was just a nice urban feel so this place was in long island city and it was really cool we booked it you know months in advance i think we had like almost three months hmm. and a month before the shoot patty's manager calls and says yeah patty doesn't want to cross a bridge can we do this at Industria? because she lives you know, in on the village She's like i just like, like to walk to work i'm like okay so now <laughs> industry is fine <laughs> shoot there all the time it's, like, it's not that urban grunge that we we're going to get in this other place this other yeah. place had this old beat-up boiler room and then there was an outdoor space and a nasty roof and yeah. so, okay we'll shoot an industria. brick wall maybe down the street you know okay fine the week before the shoot we have to confirm So industry calls, are we confirmed? I call the manager, yes, we're confirmed, we're all good. I confirm the the studio. The Friday before the shoot, and we're shooting on a Tuesday, she calls and says, Patty wants to shoot at Penn Station. I'm like, well, what? (laughs) <laughs> this has nothing to do with anything. Why? Why? Well, she wrote. It was. It was all tied in with her book, and she wrote her book while she was writing the train. So she thought this would be a great place to shoot in the because she, you know, she'd be sitting in the departure lounge waiting for the train, and she loved the big board and the pen. Like, oh my god!
0: How how often are like subject? Because obviously you're shooting celebrities a lot of time. Like how often are people like like inputting putting their input into the yeah, creative well, side? Not
1: like this. I yeah. Mean, you get you get cancellations or venue changes, but not for the reason that. Well, she had a connection with the train. And she also (laughs) thought that because it was for the, you know, the train magazine arrived, that it would be a nice connection. Like whatever she was thinking, this wasn't conveyed to me. Patty wants to shoot at Penn Station, make it happen on Friday when we're shooting on Tuesday. Now I've shot in places like that and I know what's involved. And so I called Rob, the art director. I said, okay, here's the story. He says, what? I'm like, okay. So we start making phone calls. And even though we have a connection with Amtrak, that doesn't mean we're just going to waltz into Penn station with a film crew and start working. Yeah. So we had to get together with an, on a conference call with about 20 people, everything from New York city police all the way up to Homeland security. Wow. Just to secure this. And then we get on this conference call and again, you've got all these people cross talking and asking what this is for and all this stuff. And the manager from the Amtrak who's trying to push this thing through and plus, it's photography. They don't get it. They don't know what I want to do or what we have to do. We have to get a cover, which we we're going to drop a backdrop. We have to you know do some location stuff. She wanted to see the the departure board in behind. So we end up talking to all these people, saying that we're going to keep it very, um, you know, very closed down. We'll take as little space as we can, yep. to do this. And we end up having the manager of Penn Station saying, why does we have to shoot John McEnroe's wife at Penn Station anyway? He thinks Patty <laughs> Smythe is Patty Smith. He doesn't even know who Patty Smith is. <laughs> what
0: the
1: hell? And at that point, you heard a lot of people laughing and a lot of people sighing. And we were like, okay, listen, all we need is a little space where I can drop a little backdrop and another little space over by the departure lounge yep. board. And I'll keep it we're gonna shoot with battery-powered strobes so we won't have to plug in. Yep. And be in and out in, I said an hour, which was total bullshit. There was no way we were going to be in and out an hour, but I said an hour. Yeah. So they agreed. So we showed up on the Tuesday and it was in, it was in, I think it was August. It was hot as balls. I mean, there's no air conditioning in that place. We get in there and we drop our backdrop and we set up another thing on the, like 10, 15 feet away by the departure lounge. And Patty's supposed to show up, I think around two o'clock and we're all ready to go. The, the the and remember, we told them an hour. And we told them it's going to be a little tiny space. I mean, if you see the picture, the one the, the main picture. Yeah, I'll find it. Here. We it's a big space. I mean, we dropped a like an eight, seven, eight foot wide background, and then we set up over by the departure lounge. And, and the manager for Penn Station was watching this whole thing on the security cameras, and he storms down, and this big barrel chested guy who didn't know who Patty Smith was is screaming at us what's going on here you said a small space and all this stuff and like and i i completely ignored him i let rob the art director handle him i stayed away because i knew if i opened my mouth i probably was going to lose everything we were going to be screwed yeah and rob is just walking him down talking him down just here come over here i'll explain everything and and, and there was nobody there that was the other thing like, for some reason there was nobody there it was completely quiet oh wow we found out later it was because it was between trains Okay. And it was the middle of the day. Just as Patty shows up, like five trains came in. So now the entire place is filled with people. There's people everywhere coming up downstairs, walking around the backdrop, walking in between me and the wall and and the backdrop. And just as we, we start shooting, like Patty comes in and she says, hello. And she's fascinated. She said, this is so great. She loves it. We show her the test picture. Say like, this is exactly what I wanted. <laughs> we take this picture. And just as I'm doing this one shot, this group of people come around from the side and they look over and I got this one frame.
0: Oh, so this is real. This isn't like, you didn't tell these this people. To up. Up.
1: And the funny thing is the girl in the picture, the girl with the hat that's looking around the backdrop, we found out later, is a very famous jazz guitarist, a jazz bassist. Oh, wow. And a friend of mine, when this was published, said, you know who that is? And I said, I have no idea. And he mentioned her name. And he said, yeah, she's pretty well known. So I find her on Facebook and I send her a picture. I say, is this you? and she gets in touch with me. She sends me back. She says, "Oh my God, that! I'm so glad you got in touch with me. I was in tears after I saw this." Yeah, she's like, Patty "That's Smith. fucking Patty Smith." <laughs> she was literally the only person in Penn Station that knew who Patty Smith was. I think people are walking by. Nobody gave a goddamn. They're like walking in between. Like they, they were pissed off that we that we were blocking the the entrance to the train uh, the train ramp and <laughs> the, the, yeah that was a, it was a big deal. It was a, it was a very big deal. Very hard to pull off probably the most amount of drama I've had on a shoot in 15 years.
0: Yeah. I guess that's kind of the name of the game with your stuff when you're, especially when you're shooting like environmental portraits or whatever, it's like, whatever, do what you got to do to get the shot and then like apologize after if someone has like an issue with it kind of. Right.
1: Well, that's why I stayed away from the manager because I'm, I'm, I'm okay, but I'm not, a maybe I'm not the most diplomatic person. Yeah. I can really see myself saying the wrong thing at that particular time because in my mind, it's all over, but the wet work, we've already set everything up. We're ready to go. Patty is literally three minutes away from showing up. And this guy is telling me to tear down my backdrop. Yeah. So I was, I was a little bit concerned that, uh, because that could have easily happened. He could have said, you know what? No, this isn't what I agreed to. You said an hour, you've already been here, you know, pushing an hour and a half tear it down.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's a, uh, you never know what you're going to run into in this, in this gig um i guess a couple more questions i'll let you go i don't want to take up your whole day um what kind of interests you these days like what kind of like when you get to call for an assignment like what kind of stuff piques your interest most like what are you kind of interested in uh, photography wise these days i guess
1: i mean for for the stuff that i well let's put it this way i like you mentioned it earlier you said that that i get to shoot everything you know different people it's not always the same thing that's kind of why when I started working for you know magazines it it, the the interest level was brought back like when I was when I thought I was gonna be a fashion guy I realized I didn't want to do the same thing all the time Hmm. when I started shooting for magazines the best thing about it is that you never really knew what was going to happen from day to day I mean you could and I have I've shot everything from you know, business people to presidents. I've, yep. I've been, you know, Nobel Prize winners and celebrities. I mean, it's it's it, it's a it's a great gig if what you like doing is meeting and talking to interesting people. So to say, what do I want to do next? I mean, I like I, I've been simplifying things a lot. you know, taking that I'm a lighting guy thing down to just throwing up a five foot umbrella mm-hmm. and doing Irving Penn style portraits. You know, just just getting a just getting a nice expressive portrait and spending more time with the person and not so much time on the technique and the all the other mission that surrounds it i mean it's just and and the past few gigs i've done aside from that that variety cover you mentioned have been very very simple i mean i just shot a book a book cover um where it was you know the whole thing was one big light and and you know model back model backdrops and it was a great looking shoot i mean we had it's a lot of fun, just spending time focused on the person and not so much on, on all of the stuff that makes the, the technique of the picture.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: But Who I want to shoot or what, do I, what would I like to do next? I just, you know, I take what comes along. Um, and that's kind of the cool thing about it. It's not to say I shoot everything. I mean, somebody said to me, is there anything you've turned down? I've turned down, I turned down a lot because there's things that I just know I won't do Right. Um, that's
0: interesting, so like what, when you turn down a job, what is it? it's just like the 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 technical aspect or what is it like when you do turn down a job, what factors kind of come into that decision i guess
1: very rarely technical i mean yeah. some some things that I know no you need a different kind of guy for that kind of game. that's happened, but not so much i heard your your i think your last thing with Dan I heard that, and he was talking about that too about you know, there are things he turns down because he doesn't want his own head to get in the way. I've done that. Mm-hmm. And I had, after Trump got elected, I had a client of mine call me up and she wanted me to shoot this Trump and the whole family thing. And there was no way I was going to get in that room because I was also in the store. I was surprised she asked me
0: mm-hmm.
1: because I was, you know, I, I know two women that were actually in the in the grabby pile mm-hmm. and I was yeah. the backup for one of them. So, mm-hmm. So I, I turned that down. She's like, "Well, I understand," but and then she got another guy, a very good photographer that I know, to do the gig, and he did just a fine gig of Trump and his his kids. But I couldn't be in that room. Yeah, no way. I mean, I was just. Um, and there's been a couple of other people. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't so much the personality that I didn't want to be in with. It was just what they wanted me to do. It wasn't so much my picture. Mm-hmm. Um, Anytime I get hired and somebody starts describing how they want to do something, and I see it's veering off into a lifestyle type thing, I'm not a lifestyle guy. I'm
0: the
1: guy to just, you know, like Cheyenne will have his dog under one arm and I'm not that guy to run and gun with the the that kind of thing. You know, I mean, that's uh, that's a different kind of photographer. I don't do that kind of thing. I'm much more controlled. And occasionally they'll say. Yeah, we want you to do this and this and this, and then just go outside and run around and do some lifestyle stuff. Like, well, no, that's nowhere near what I do.
0: Yeah, it's its own skill set.
1: And if if you push me into it, yeah, I can do it, and then I'll probably have heartburn for three days. You know.
0: Yeah, you you got to go with your gut, I guess. Um, and oh, one more. Uh, yeah, you photographed Obama. You got to go to the Oval Office. I was just kind of curious, what was that for, and like, how was that experience?
1: Well, that, yeah, that was. That was a highlight for sure. Um, I'd already been in the Oval three times before that, mm-hmm. as an assistant, and then I shot Clinton for a magazine right after his second term. Like I right, do you got to him to the second term. So the, the getting into the Oval was was you know I already I'd already done that. I already yeah. knew kind of what to expect, but this came up completely unexpected. I was off on a location scout in the Meadowlands. I was literally standing. In the swamp outside of Giant Stadium in a bunch of you know eight foot tall reeds when I get a phone call from my wife, who was <laughs> at Business Week at the time, and everybody in the photo department, the art director, another photo editor, and they said, What are you doing? I'm like, I'm standing in the weeds. What? She's like, Can you shoot Obama on Monday? <laughs> Friday afternoon at like four o'clock. I'm like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, sure. Of course. And you think, okay, is he coming to New York? No, no, We're going to DC. And then you got to think of what, and then they say, it's not going to be a big setup. They're telling us it's just going to be while the interview's going on. The, the editor and the Washington bureau chief are going to be in the oval with them and you're going to have to shoot it while it's going on. Yep. But you're still thinking, okay, well, we'll still set up, you know, just a light on a stand and you know, or a stick, and we'll get something. So, so sure we, you know, very quickly have to get all of our documents together and send everything down to DC and get pre-approved and all that. And the, the funny thing was, we end up as we're driving down to DC. It was Ronnie and me and my assistant. We're just passing Baltimore. And I said to my assistant, I said, You got your passport, right? Because I knew that his driver's license had expired. Like oh, it had yeah. been expired for like three years. Yep. It just occurred to me, we got to get into, the, into the, you know, the White House. And what if he doesn't have valid ID? And he yep. says, oh, What do I need my passport for? I said, you're, Dude, you're going to the White House. So then for the last, mile, last hour driving to DC, I'm thinking, Oh my God, he didn't, we're not even going to get in. And sure enough, we get to the you know we get to the security gate, and the marine guard's looking at his, his driver's license, which was expired three years earlier.
0: Three years, holy yeah. shit!
1: <laughs> and he looked at he looks at him, and he looks at me, and we're all on the list. They've already run our social security numbers, and we're not a threat and everything. But you know, it's that last little hump. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sure enough, my assistant's sitting there with you know, and he looks at him, and he goes, "Okay, just go in, just go, go." Yeah. Um, but then, okay, so the, the shoot itself. When we get in there was a big wait, I mean, tremendous wait. Like we were waiting in the in the, the press room for a couple of hours past our allotted time. And they, because he had a lot of stuff happening that day. You know, he'd only been in office a few months and it was like, okay, you know. And he was up to his ass in actual world leading stuff. You know, taking a picture and being interviewed for business week wasn't exactly that big a deal. So we got pushed, I, I, I remember it was a couple of hours. So now I'm thinking, oh, we're gonna get like, Five minutes you know total they're just going to have him interviewed in the hallway we go in we sit down we're supposed to they said 10 minutes we were there for 35 minutes oh wow and he was just you know it was obviously the end of a very long day he looked you know a little a little beat down when he got in you in some of my pictures and again some of my pictures you can see he's actually looking just tired he's leaning over in the desk and he's uh, i'll, pull, I'll pull up my
0: favorite one dude this one was so good <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: that's that's the assistant with the expired the expired card exactly he's holding
0: know. up the color card it is so good
1: <laughs> well the funny thing about that like i do <laughs> i do this thing where we throw in the color checker just as a goof almost on every single shoot we do yeah and, you know, yeah, I've got an entire thing of light test on my on my website. And and Bo comes in with the card to hold it in. And Obama reaches for it and says, I can hold that. And Bo says, no, 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 I'm holding it.
0: Obama said he could hold it. <laughs>
1: oh, yeah. He was going gra- to he was going to grab the Macbeth card to hold it himself. And I said, no, 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 it's OK. Bo wanted to be in the picture. So he ran into the picture and held the card just to get, you know, get his own picture of himself with the, the president. That's but awesome. again, you know, I'm thinking in my head, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minutes, we had set up a 7B Pro photo and a, and a little mini Octa on a stick. And, and I knew the Oval Office and I knew the layout and I knew where we could get a really cool portrait of him mm-hmm. with no time. Like literally we just we we pasted off and we knew if, he, if, you know, if he stood back, you know, eight feet from him holding this light, I knew what the exposure would be and everything else. And it just kept on going on and on and on and 10 minutes was 20 and then 30. And finally at 35 minutes, yep. the press guy comes in and says, okay, we really have to wrap this up. And so then I turned to, you know, the president and I say, oh, just one last thing. Do you think we can come over here. There's this wonderful portrait. Of these of Oh yeah, sure. He, he gets up and he walks over and he stands there. The press guy says, no, 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 that's it. No more pictures. Ah. You know, like it was just like a bullet to the brain. It's like, and, and then of course, we're there for another 10 minutes anyway, just huh. hanging out. You know, yeah. Pete Souza comes in and takes our picture. Yeah. Like, he had taken my picture with Reagan back when I was an assistant. And yeah. Pete comes in and, hey, Pete, and he, he actually took, he says, he says okay, I'll do this. I said, look, just use my camera. I handed him my 5D and he took our <laughs> picture with my camera so he didn't have to go through all of the stuff of getting the auto-signed portrait from yeah. the White House. Yeah, so Pete actually took our portraits with the president using my camera
0: that's almost and, better that's awesome <laughs> I,
1: turned, I turned to him while he's taking the picture i said hey if we're going to keep on doing this why can't i just get that one picture over here of my he goes
0: oh so you were still, still trying to get obama to do
1: pushing. it and he would have done it and the and the press guy looked at me and gave me this stink guy and says no nah, no nah, nah, get out of here so
0: man yeah that is oh man that's tough but to, so-
1: two stories like that over your life. You just go, just one more thing. If we had just cut the interview like three minutes earlier, I would have got that in. You yeah,
0: know? definitely. Still a great story, but Brad, man, I could have talked to you for five more hours, man, but uh, I'll let you go until we'll have to do part two or something, but real, real pleasure talking to you, man. So I can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to do this.
1: Yeah, it actually uh, it went very quick.
0: It was like an hour and 20.
1: Yeah, we can do the tech talk. Actually, we didn't get into a lot of shit, man. We didn't even. Talk
0: we'll, do it. One, we'll, we'll do one. We'll do one with involved. the. We should do one with you, me, and Cheyenne, man. That'd be a That'd be a rowdy one.
1: God help us! That'd be That'd be a nightmare. <laughs> By the way, Cheyenne says he just to make sure that everybody knows he's five foot five. Okay, is Cheyenne?
0: Five.
1: Yeah. All he, right. Yeah, I'm sure that I told minute. everybody. Cheyenne Askarney is five foot five inches. <laughs> All right,
0: right on. All right, Brad. Well, thanks so much, and uh, everybody can go check out your website. It says bradtrent.com. And then Instagram, same thing, this app, Brad Trenton, I believe, right?
1: Uh, Yeah. yeah. Perfect. A blog that hasn't been updated since COVID because, uh, fuck, you know, I just, I look at the blog. I'm like, I got to get going. I got like these six gigs I've shot this past year. I should just put them all up. on There the you list. go. The COVID catch up blog post here. Boom. Go nuts. <laughs> put, like a five page long blog post of just all the stuff I've shot in the past year.
0: Right on. Well, have I know, a-
1: thanks. I, I appreciate it. this. Yeah, thank a- you,
0: Brad. Take care, man.
1: All right, you too,
0: buddy. Bye. So there you have it. That was the Brad Trent interview. Uh, Just want to thank Brad so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. It was a real pleasure talking to him about his journey with photography. Um, He's accomplished a lot and uh, just done some really amazing stuff. Uh, Incredible portrait photographer. Um, So definitely go check out Brad's work at bradtrent.com. As well as definitely go give him a follow on Instagram, at Brad Trent. Um, he's always posting up cool shoots and uh, different projects he's working on. So definitely go give him, a, give him a follow. And as always, I'll be having weekly podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, as well as the Photo Banter YouTube page. Um, so definitely go check us out on YouTube. Um, hit subscribe. It be much appreciated.
1: And as always, thanks so much for listening and take care.